taking forward the idea of quality, obviously the fuel can have that quality assurance, but there's also what happens on board, tank cleaning, segregation, you know, handling the fuels, training your crew correctly to be familiar with these new fuels. That's obviously, that's a big segment of the chain. So I wonder, Naim, if you'd like to talk about that a little bit. Yes, this is very, very important thing that uh, what we call it, that uh, what we normally call it the hardware thing and software things, yes. Uh, what we are doing with the ship implementation plan is making our uh, assets likely to, uh, you know, to embrace any, any changes in the fuel quality. And when we are advising our clients to prepare a ship implementation plan or do the risk assessment, we ask them to please consider right from the gas oil, from the very light fuels to 380 grade fuels, just in case that you are prepared. And this is a very important aspect as well, because even if uh, you have to issue a CONAR, non-availability report, based on the, some technical implications, there, those technical implications you have not identified in the ship implementation plan, then it is very unlikely that any port state control will accept those. But if you have rightly identified those risks and did whatever you could to fix those, and due to different issues, you could not do that, then you may have a case that you still use, you have a choice to use certain types of fuel and avoid certain types of fuels. This is one thing. With respect to the tank cleaning, we have seen the people have taken different approaches. For example, some people are just emptying the fuel, emptying the tanks without cleaning it and diluting that with the very low sulfur fuel oil, one option. And we see that within the, if you, to, you consider the unpumpables in the tank and then put 0.5% sulfur fuels, then start using it within maximum of 10 working days and provided the ship is running, the fuel uh, sulfur content is normally up to the very low sulfur fuel option, yes. Second thing to accelerate this uh, issue, the ships are using gas oils to dilute it, the 10, 20 tons, and then remove it. Another option the ships take is uh, about the use of chemicals to clean the clinging on the sides of the tank and tank structure. But that, the question remains that what will happen to, to the unpumpable fuels that will still need to be done. And uh, the, uh, some few clients are using manual cleaning as well. And that's, uh, but it all depends actually, you know, what, uh, what agreements you have with your charters. If you are running your own ship, you have the liberty to buy fuels and then you are going to buy the fuel, your technical implications, the, above all the cost implications, because it will increase the cost a lot if you are especially running a large um, fleet. But once you have done all this, then where we are focusing and our main focus from the Lloyd's digital perspective is that unless we prepare the people on, on the front line, this all preparation sitting in this room or talking to the to the stakeholders in the conferences and engaging with them is will not be fruitful unless we actually tackle, unless we train the people on the front line. And with this view, actually, we we developed three type of courses. Even we have developed the courses for the uh, for the operations people, so that the people, the charters, the operators, sometimes they don't know, they don't want to know about fuels. Yes, at least to tell them that this is the fuel, this is how it looks like. And this is what it can do to your shape, and it can stop your shape just with the minor mistake. So the, and what is your operational constraint? If your technical department or your charter is saying, can I buy this? 
ask the right questions. This is one thing. And we have already, you know, delivered some of these courses. We have a very advanced course for the ship, ship staff, where we can engage with the ship staff uh, on the two seminars and the, the company specific and talk in the live terms uh, about their ships, their technical implications, and how they best use that thing. And very recently, because it is impossible for us even to actually train all the people in the world. So we have uh, uh, used some technology and developed an e-learning module. This is a standalone module, and this is specifically to train the ship staff. It has, you know, if you are a person on shore, it is good for you to do, but it is most beneficial for the people who are going to join the ship. And our, uh, our aim is to actually direct this course to the people who are going to join the ship from now onwards till 2020, so that when they are going to join the ship, then they know what are the fuel types I'm going to get, what are the implications, and above all, what I can do in the middle of the sea to protect these assets from any breakdown. And that's the thing, and that's one of the uh, one of the key messages from our uh, e-learning module. And I think that uh, that's the best one because everything else will take a lot of time and uh, logistics, where e-learning module will just you can do there and then. You just need an internet connection. And by the way, it also tests you as well. <laughs> I myself failed twice, but. <laughs> Let me make one, one final comment on the ship implementation plan. I just want to demystify maybe one thing. The ship implementation plan is not just applicable to the ship owner. It's applicable also to the supplier in terms of getting their logistic, their barges ready. So um, we are taking a lot of input from the ship implementation plan when we were looking at getting our fleet of barges ready. So um, the ship implementation plan is a great tool that from a supply standpoint, we also have used in terms of getting ready to deliver. I just um, want to move on. I do want to look at the scrubber issue, um, but I don't want to wait too far into that debate because you know, it has polarised industry opinion. It's been played out very publicly in, in the pages of the, of the press and media. But I just kind of wondered if you had some feedback about how you see the longevity of scrubbers as a compliance option. I mean, there is increasingly public perception that it's a bit of a sticking plaster solution. It's not really a proper environmental solution if shipping is really going to go green. I wonder, I think TK has a view on the scrubbers, doesn't it? We haven't been convinced by the scrubber uh, argument so far. Um, that's not to say we won't in the future. But uh, for us, uh, we wanted to, A, as mentioned earlier, you know, sustainability is important to us. And getting rid of the sulfur at the refinery end, I think, is the best solution. Having said that, I think for larger vessels, the scrubbers can make sense, especially for a VLCC, for example. Um, you know, the larger the ship, the fewer the ports they're going to call. So it's going to be larger ports where they're not going to have, hopefully, any issues um, getting hold of the, the high sulfur product. But for us, we haven't been convinced of the scrubber argument so far. I also have a feeling, you know, once an industry has almost removed a product, I think it's very difficult for that product to make a return. So, you know, there are some that predict that scrubber installations and retrofits are going to increase as we move towards 2022, 2023. Let's see how it happens. But I think once the high sulfur fuel oil demand sort of shrinks as big as it will come January, I think it's going to take a lot to turn that around. My view is slightly different okay. from an energy standpoint. It's more efficient to remove sulfur with a scrubber at sea than it is at a refinery, both in terms of energy and in terms of uh, 
of cost. And that's the reason why scrubbers were born as a land application, as a fuel treatment process rather than a sulfur treatment process, rather than a sulfur removal from the, the crude per se or the resid. Again, the order of magnitude is a refinery investment is in the order of billions of dollars for a coker versus the not insignificant but different order of magnitude on, 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 on a ship. Sulfur uh, removal and uh, use of abatement technology is an IMO compliant solution. I appreciate that there's a lot of debate at this point in time. One of the things I always look at the debate is that is the debate based on science? And that should be the way that we look at each of the current alternative, irrespective of whether you're looking at from a sulfur technology, potentially from a greenhouse gases technology, potentially from a particulate matter technology, potentially from a rack carbon technology, potentially from a NOx technology. So all those environmental pollutants, um, we need to continue to look at that from a science standpoint to have the right way for us to compare all the various solutions. After that, once you have that, then as an end user of a fuel, whether it's a PLSFO, a ULSFO, a marine gas oil, an isulfur fuel oil with a combination of abatement technology, that would be the choice of the end user. I think that from an IMO standpoint, there is an effort in trying to come with a more unified approach than what we're seeing today on the basis of some of the ports going down the route of not banning open loop scrubbers, but banning the discharge of effluent water from open loop scrubbers. The two concepts are very different um, in uh, their port waters. Um, again, is the science and the principle of dilution applicable? Um, again, discharge of effluent water are highly regulated, both in terms of pH and PAH. So I think that from an industry standpoint, we welcome the approach that IMO is taking in terms of bringing the various port authorities together and the stakeholders together to get a science-driven approach on this debate of open-loop scrubbers, effluent water, yes or no. I think, again, the, the, the scrubbers, actually, we don't have any problems as such, as long as it is allowed by the port states. The one question, actually, which it comes to again and again in the market as well, that even if IMO comes up with a unified approach, but it does not prohibit any member state to ban the use of open loop scrubbers, still there will be a way that will be the people or the port states or the member states who don't want to put too much effort in understanding their science behind it. They may use that study, but still I believe that it is more of a public perception than the science and public perception always wins, unfortunately. So the thing is, uh, and second thing, with the, if you look at the long-term incentive, when after 2020, definitely the big topics would be decarbonization, yes? Mm -hmm. uh, it, is, it is unlikely to, to see any technology which actually increases the CO2 footprints will uh, will be a big hit in future, yes? And third and most importantly, this scrubber or not, it is exhaust gas cleaning systems, yes, to be fact. Uh, these are actually installed purely on the financial incentives basis. And once that thing is removed, like we have seen in the public, that there may be a premium in Singapore to get high sulfur fuel oil on the spot market if you don't have the long-term contract. 
then if that financial incentive is in doubt, I'm sure that, you know, the take up of Scrubber may be a little bit uh, downside. And I think, I yes, I mean, and, talk, and certainly sort of from the standpoint where we are now, you know, talking to the smaller, mid-sized bunker suppliers, they're not going to make available um, high sulfur on contracts. You know, they'll say, if you want it, we'll, we'll get it for you, but it's not going to be a, a contract available fuel. So yeah. already we're beginning to see that sort of pulling back, I think, aren't we? Those suppliers really have to think about their logistics setup. You Absolutely. Know, your yeah. tanks, your lines, yeah. and your barges. And if you're going to offer three different grades that need separate lines, that costs money, and you're going to have to uh, have customers that are willing to pay for it for it to be a, a viable... Uh, well, the other thing is as simple as this. You cannot afford um, to clean the tank on your barge every other week because you're switching between a very low sulfur fuel oil to a high sulfur fuel oil. Now, everything is technically feasible, but it comes at a cost on throughout that back end of the supply chain, and, uh, and, uh, and therefore it becomes, as I said, economically as well as operationally very, very challenging. The other thing is important to remember from a refining standpoint, once you invest in a unit such as a coker or an hydrocracker, those units take fuel oil as a feedstock and break the molecule down into lighter molecule. And therefore, the two things cannot exist in, um, in parallel. So you either go down that route to take that fuel oil as a feed and break down or not. And you don't want to have billions of dollars of investment sitting there idle to produce or to make available a product that at the end of the day, under normal circumstances up, up until today, has traded at a negative uh, crack versus the crude that you put into your refinery. So it goes back into what we were saying before in terms of collaboration and in terms of the fact that fuel oil and marine gas oil are not going to be available as they are today in 2020. And I wonder if we can look at what we think the marine fuel landscape might be after 2020. Obviously, we've seen the majors um, really coming back into the bunker market in quite a big way over the past year or so, or certainly in readiness for 2020. And obviously, Exxon as a, as a case in point, you know, it's made a very big financial commitment to producing its new fuel. It wants to be a first mover. And you have said that you are looking for oversight of the fuel supply chain right down to the delivery logistics. I just wondered whether that is a sustainable position or whether it's something that obviously you have a first mover advantage, that's something you might relax in future. I just wonder if you can explain a little bit why you've taken that position. We, 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 so from an ExxonMobil standpoint, we've taken that approach because we firmly believe in the quality of the products that we're making available to the marine um, industry. And we're taking that approach in order to make sure that quality controls happens at each and every point of that value chain. And why we've done that? Because our customers have asked us to do so. Um, and over the years, that request became louder and louder. And uh, with doing that while this change is happening, responds to customer requests, as well as we believe that we can make it cost efficient for the end user. So that has been the main mindset that we've used in terms of when we were satisfied with the fuel quality dimension. The reason why we branded the fuels and the thing that I always think about our brand and our fuels, it's, it may sound simplistic, but um, I look at the brand as a promise, as a promise of quality, as a promise of reliability throughout 
value chain as a promise of integrity, which has different aspects from, from sulfur to the use of mass flow meters, and as a promise of innovation and the technology that we have deployed in the development of these uh, new fuels. So that's how I think about that. And therefore, our choice to go and increase our presence in the last mile of the delivery responds to that brand promise. After what we saw in Houston a year and a half ago um, and the effect that had globally, you know, that product went from Houston to Singapore to all sorts of places. Um, and I think it really sort of was a bit of a, a wake-up call, for, certainly for, for shipping companies. Some suffered blackouts. There was an awful lot of problems. Um, and I think when you have a, a major who controls the whole supply chain from the refining process... Exactly. Exactly. Oversight of the whole supply chain. Um, it certainly is a benefit for us as a buyer to know that your supplier understands their supply chain versus, say, an independent or smaller uh, bunker supplier who is buying product in an open market, not necessarily knowing where it's come from or how many times it's been blended. Okay, and perhaps if we can now look at the characteristics of the of the new point fives in, in a little more detail. Obviously, the, I think the ones we've seen so far is a wide range of viscosities, um, density issues over pore points, energy content. Yeah. Um, and a few people have been saying to me, wide range of viscosity should be specifying viscosity we want to buy. Or oh, I just wonder, Naomi, if you can explain what viscosity means, you know, now that um, we're not just buying to a centistoke, we're buying to sulphur. Um, yeah. Does it matter that we have such a wide range of viscosity? Yeah. yeah, that's very important, very, very critical question. First of all, as we have discussed till now, that the, these marine fuels are non-existent in the market. They must have been produced or formulated in one way or other. And this depends on the plants which are available to the producers to make those formulations. So this is the critical point here. Now, at the moment, actually, we have tested about 600 plus samples. When we see those samples, some are the trial samples, some are the under non-destroyer agreement, and some are the in-juice samples. When we see those samples, they're we take a methodological approach about the how these fuels are actually, well, what is the criteria, what is the benchmark we are measuring against. When we compare against the certificate of quality from the fuel supplier, we have seen that a same certificate of quality have produced 10 cent stroke and 420 cent stroke. Certificate of quality is same. Similarly, we have seen the, the density of the product right from the light, very light distillate and on the light side to the heavy residuals, about 991. So it's quite a big difference. These are just not the numbers actually. These are a, a lot of implications on board the shape. Just uh, one example of viscosity. If your shape is not prepared and your uh, machinery is not up to date to deal with the gas oils, as Robert said that in some ports, if very low sulfur fuel is not available, they might have to bunker gas oil. But the problem with the gas oil, it has very low viscosity. If you put it in a tank, and then you only to find out that your pumps are not capable to suck and transfer those light products from that distance, maybe a ship is 400 meter long or 300 meter long. So what will happen? What will happen under different ambient conditions? 
what will happen if uh, if there is a problem like you know the, with the gas oil there is a problem it has to be stored for the longer period what will happen to that and how you best manage those especially with the ships with a limited number of tanks what you uh, what you will do so from the quality perspective we see from the risk management perspective one should consider everything that can be possible within the frames of right light grades to the very heavy grades they should get themselves prepared another option may be to restrict their supply chain to very few suppliers but that will run a risk for example you know not all the suppliers are supplying in all the ports in the world especially if you are cramped fine then there is a real risk that you have to deal with this in the every second day so it's better to actually get yourself prepared only on the sulfur itself we have seen more than 6% uh, a little bit more than 6% of the fuels are off specification even on sulfur when i say off specification it means that it is above the 95% confidence limit so we still see that as i said earlier that there is a trend with where the suppliers are optimizing their low sulfur blends to and getting closer to 0.48 0.49 but with that thing we have seen the increase from the 1% to 6% on the off specification as well so these are the real quality concerns which we see in the market apart from these quality concerns there are some issues which we will be highlighted about the Houston the contaminations present in the fuel or the unusual blend components we have at least two ships loaded about 2000 tons of fuel which they cannot Use now, and this is the low sulfur product. And this was thankfully a trial product, and this is undergoing rigorous testing. We have identified that there are some blends which were used, which are even unfortunately allowed under the ISO umbrella. They were used, and they were causing trouble. So this also shows this is not only the making of the numbers or or hitting the numbers and looking at the numbers evenly. it is inspect rocks back what is fit for use what is fit for purpose and also to use in one of the blend components for example it was used maybe for example 5% or 10% before but now if its percentage is increased more than 50 to 60% that may be causing trouble so this is the area where actually i think the the supply chain and refineries and the all of the suppliers need to look at that okay we are allowed to make the fuel or formulate the fuel which is fit for the purpose but how what will happen on the on the other side of the fence what will happen to the shapes there is a general misconception that quality and viscosity are related and they are synonym for each other and um, my perspective is that low viscosity products are to be extremely good they could be meeting all the quality requirements um, the 16 characteristic close five etc there is one thing that people need to pay attention to a low viscosity product which is the waxing characteristics of the fuel so again what i encourage ship owners to do when they see a low viscosity product is once again put your supplier under a magnifying glass ask them do they understand the chemistry of their fuel what kind of test have they done to understand the waxing characteristic of those products because being lower in viscosity they're not going to be eating as much so again um viscosity and quality are not the same thing low viscosity product could be extremely good and high quality but 
put your supplier under the magnifying glass and ask them if they understand yeah. waxing. Yeah, I think that became very apparent in 2015 when we saw a lot of fuel oil, uh, gas oil, sorry, uh, where the wax separated and, you know, you open the tank and you just see a white uh, candle, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but for distillates, it's called flow properties. Yeah. And, and whereas in the residual fuels, is that long tail at the end yeah. that if you don't reach the right temperature, but again, if you heat that product too much, the viscosity is not the optimal after the injection in um, in the engine. So yeah. it's, it's something that, um, again, shipowners should pay attention. Especially yeah. on these vessels who don't, or are not heating fuel oils on the vessel. So, you know, a tanker heating fuel oils, residual heat may, may heat the gas oil a little yeah. bit and you'll be fine. Whereas an offshore vessel working in the, you know, Norway or the Arctic can have real problems. Yeah. yeah. We have, you know, and of course, uh, this points to, to somehow and problem with, with the present ISO 8217, uh, where traditionally the viscosity have been the blending target and, and lower viscosity have traditionally been what cost money. So if you ordered something according to um, a specification limit like the 380 centistoke, you would be more or less ensured that you would get that because it was simply too expensive to get lower viscosity than that. With the new sulfur regime coming into force, the blending target will be uh, sulfur. And to reach the, the sulfur uh, limit, you, in many instances, need to add a lot of light products. And that means the you're not anymore sure where where you will end um, with, with viscosity. If you order for 380, you might get 25. And this is probably an, an area where we need ISO uh, to reassess the applicability of the tables, uh, having only maximum limits uh, for viscosity. Probably, I think, that's my view, we probably need some ranges. Um, so at least we know, you know, somewhere get a ballpark figure of where the product we order will actually end up uh, be when we receive it on board. So that there is a post-event process to be done on uh, how these fuels are being formulated and, and how we will see this uh, being expressed in the standard. The counter to that, Robert, is that in an environment where ISO for marine fuel still provides quite a degree of flexibility from a manufacturer, clearly that becomes has the plus side of cost-effectiveness of the end product for the end use. I always compare that to the opposite end of the spectrum of jet fuel, where the specifications are so tight that you can actually commingle jet fuel around the world. So, again, I, I agree with you that the uh, density is an important operating parameter. Part of that can be addressed by an educated discussion between a, a supplier and a purchaser. Um, and then, again, what ISO may be able to do in that sense to provide more transparency. I fully agree with you. I think that uh, I also agree with this, but uh, when they were developing this ship implementation plan, these are the concerns on the quality of the fuels that has led to the issuance of the ship implementation plan, that this is recognized that in after 2020, very low sulfur fuel oils will be of variable quality. And mainly the quality is coal properties and the, the viscosity variance. That's the main issues in that. Just uh, talking about the vexy fuels in the residuals, we have been doing some internal research and development and what we, we fully agree that what we found out that due to low viscosity, if you handle the fuel, if you treat the fuel, if you heat the fuel less, 
than certain degrees, which is completely okay with respect to viscosity, but it can still cause you trouble operationally, operationally in the purification and the filtration. That's why what we, you know, the uh, on the backing of the large digital, uh, we did our research and we have produced, developed a new test method where we can really give the operational advice to the share that irrespective of the very low viscosity of the fuel, you must meet this temperature, which will not only help you operationally, that it, it will cause you to, it will help you in the smooth operation and fuel will be passing to the purifiers and filters at the same time. And at the same time, it will not be compromising the viscosity that much that will affect the combustion of the share, combustion in the machinery, engine machinery. So that's a uh, uh, slight additional test. And we are advising our clients based on the, if this, whenever we detect that the fuel is ranging in that area, like less than 80 degrees or less than 60 degrees, uh, 60 centistroke, sorry. So we are advising our client and advising that uh, this additional test, additional assurance is available and rest it's up to their decision if they take on on that. And I just wonder if I could maybe ask a quick question about um, ISO 8217 and the 2017 specification, which I know that you recommend buying to. But I mean, the fact is that very few people buy the 2017 version, do they? And I just wondered how you think that can be changed. Will suppliers supply more to that spec? What do you find, Mads, as a buyer? As a buyer, we purchase probably the vast majority of them still on 2010. There's still a few places that are still doing 2005. Um, we have nothing against 2017. We see it more from the majors than we do from, from independents. I suppose it's been a case, you know, we had the 2010 specifications, then we had 2012, which didn't really evolve a material change in the physical product. It was more to do with the test methods of the hydrogen sulfide. 2017, again, no, the major differences are the, um, the cold flow properties of the distillates. And uh, the fame. And the fame, exactly. So, and clause five. Yeah, and clause, and clause five, which is, uh, yes, very important for suppliers. Um, so for everyone. For everyone, for everyone. Um, perhaps when we see more major changes, we'll see the uptake. Uh, I think we very rarely saw anybody supplied to 2012 specifications. So I think perhaps as we as, as the specification is updated, we will see uh, maybe a jump from 27, not 2017, but whatever the next specification would be. At the end of the day, the specifications are developed jointly by the industry. <laughs> the industry includes suppliers, manufacturers, um, um, customers, testing agencies, etc. Um, the way I look at that is that it's a drive to increase the standard and the transparency in the industry. And from a, an end user standpoint, the end user always has the choice, the choice of asking in some location, that choice may be more limited than in other location. But to me, the important work that ISO does is it broad spectrum of industry participants and stakeholders and, again, driving the industry forward rather than uh, holding the industry back. I, in my view, actually, you know, there is no material change between 2010 and 2017. If you are not going to buy DFA grades, which is included the 7% biofuels, if you're not going to buy that, then even if you use 2010 or 2017, in these specifications, nothing changed. Even in 2017, they suggest that supplier to report the cold flow properties, but there is no limits in there. So, in fact, this is the same. And uh, statistically, over more than 60% of the few of the of the clients are still following 2005. That's 30, 30, 35% doing the 
uh, even more actually during the 2010-12. And I don't want to say zero, but less than 1% <laughs> of for the 2017. Yes. <laughs> uh, the, the real issue is with the, and this is the feedback from our clients, and maybe, you know, Pat can uh, high, put more, shed more light on that, that the 2017, the class five wording is favoring more the suppliers than the end users. This is an independent from the, I'm the voice of our customer. I have nothing, uh, I don't buy fuel, so I have not <laughs> changed it. So, uh, and due to that reason, because of some wording, there are one or two words which are inserted, which really uh, make the end users uncomfortable. And this is, and that's why this is the main hindrance from their side to go beyond that. Otherwise, this is the same. But or counter argument, as Roberts initially said, we said, why you are only going to the to the ISO 8217? This is a commercial agreement. This is a commercial standard. It's fine. You have more strong clause in the regulation 18.3 in the Marple Annex 6, which is same as the clause 5 of 2005 version. So, okay, this is a perception from the industry. But even if they go on 2017, and as long as they refer back to the uh, Marple Annex 6 regulation 18.3, I think they are uh, suitably covered. But one thing which uh, I think that maybe, you know, it's a point to, uh, for a discussion from Beth maybe, that if somebody, if a latest version of any standard is in the market, like ISO 2017 is there, do the end user have the right to still buy in 2005 and in, in cases of litigation, where, it will automatically go there or not? Just a question. Because this is not a... I hate to give a legal answer, but it really depends. Um, it depends what the contract says. If it specifies just ISO without the year at the end of it, then you may have a reasonable argument to say that it ought to be the most up-to-date one. Sometimes you see a specification that says ISO 2005, or most recent, which will get you there. Um, it really depends on how it's expressed in the contract. If you've got ISO 2005 in there and your charter has delivered you something that complies with that, that's okay today. Post-January, and particularly post-March next year, that might not be all right for the charter um, because I think irrespective of what is said in the, the charter in terms of there will be an implied term that, that the fuel supply has to be IMO 2020 compliant whatever that might mean. And so just relying on having an ISO 2005 specification in your charter and agreement is not likely to save you. Which brings you back exactly to your earlier point, doesn't it, about that clarification of terminology and the kind of yeah. preciseness, mm -hmm. definitely. Yes. And I wonder, I mean, sort of moving, getting over the 2020 watershed, we're there. <laughs> Are you anticipating, Beth, more quality claims? coming, landing on your desk? Or? I mean, it's all gearing up potentially to be a perfect storm for um, litigators. I mean, we've talked an awful lot this afternoon about the, the practical problems that using low sulfur fuel oil has, particularly on board and the importance for the master and the crew to be trained to know what to look for. One thing we haven't really touched on is the importance of sampling and how that can be very difficult from a contractual point of view, not only to make sure that you're collecting your marple sample properly, but also some bunker suppliers uh, will have quite stringent uh, sampling clauses about what sample they will uh, accept as being one that proves compliance or non-compliance. And so there are a whole number of onboard issues which may radically change, or at least uh, in terms of a piece of litigation, 
uh, can impact on the liability situation. Uh, one of the things that me and my colleagues discuss at length when we are terribly bored of discussing anything else um, is what happens or what might happen where everything looks like you've got a compliant fuel, you've ordered a compliant fuel, but it's just off spec when it's tested, just slightly over the 0.50%. Whose fault is that? We know how quality disputes usually work out between owners and charterers. There is a hell of a fight that happens about whether it is a problem on board or whether it's a problem with what's been supplied. And with those marginal differences, if someone is or a sample is just over, those arguments are going to happen the same. You know, it's going to be the same type of argument, but there is going to be a lot more focus on what has been happening on board? Were the lines completely clean? Were the tanks clean? Is there something there that supports non-compliance? Is the bunker supplier able to show from their sample that they delivered something compliant? As I say, perfect storm for a litigator. Uh, not a particularly great one for anybody picking up. It's interesting to listen to how the legal community is always only referring to the commercial contractual aspect of the matter and and quite frankly if something is above the limit it's a statutory offense it's a statutory offense to supply the product in the first place to the ship and it's a statutory offense to even carry it on, on board after the first of of march and that actually opens a whole different uh, range of legal dealing with the matter in in my view uh, something that is vastly overlooked by the legal community, that you need to bring in the authorities in the bunker states, the flag states, to, to be party to dealing with this problem of fuel oil being supplied beyond the legal limits. And I think we need to broaden our views on how we deal with this. This is not just a commercial matter. It is beyond a commercial matter. But of course, there is also a commercial matter. Uh, to be sold. We're going to be faced with this issue, aren't we, where a compliant fuel becomes a non-compliant fuel because of whatever issue on board. Then what? Then we have a whole debunkering process and it opens up a huge can of worms, doesn't it? And I'd maybe bringing this discussion to a close, we could tentatively address the issue of phonars, which I think there's still some clarification needed on what people are going to do in terms of if they do find themselves with, with non-compliant fuel on board. And, and I think we, need, we are you know, still bound by Marple Annex 6, which says that the ship should not be required to deviate from its intended voyage or to delay unduly the voyage to achieve compliance. So, I mean, how is this going to be interpreted? Beth, are people asking questions of you about that already? Yes and no. I mean, I think it's, I think there are several things there to unpick. I think the use of phonars um, is something really to use very sparingly and not something to rely on at all it's not a mechanism as far as I understand it that is recognized by the the regulation um, if anything it's something that the industry has discussed as being a way to perhaps argue for a lighter fine if you are in breach or find yourself in breach so I don't really like the conversation around phonals as being that the the thing that one can rely on. I think there are difficulties with that. I think depending on your flag state or your port state control, you know, if you're non-compliant, I think Robert mentioned it earlier, if you arrive non-compliant, are you going to be able to depart non-compliant? Who is going to deal with the cost of debunkering? 
can you debunker? There's not always facilities, depending on where you are, to debunker and to do the cleaning that you're going to need to do. So there's a whole host of potentially thorny questions on the practical side, as well as on the legal side. But Bonars, I would kind of <laughs> really <laughs> care. Treat with care. Yeah. I mean, I think with Bonars, I think it was a few months ago, there was something that came out when someone said that ship owners can use a phonar if they are unsure of the quality of the fuel in that particular port. And I've been thinking practically about that. I think it's a very small chance you're going to be in a situation where the only product available is high sulfur fuel oil and you don't have any gas oil on board or gas oil is not available. So I think just that the opportunity to use the phonar has been considerably reduced as we get into 2020 because the chances of only a non-compliant fuel being available, I would say, are slim. And the burden of the proof, unfortunately, is with the ship owner and uh, all the forum I participated in too, where IMO representatives were there, their strong advice is that if you end up in a situation where you may be need to consider a phonar, please make sure that you have all your mitigating evidences developed from the ship implementation plan to the discussion and the exchange of communication with supplier at that location, etc., because those will be the mitigating circumstances that a port authority or a flag state may, not will, may consider in terms of all the dimension we were yeah. just discussing. And it also sounds in terms of your club cover, because it, I think Excellent. for most PI clubs, uh, any cover concerning or, or relating to fines for, for IMO breaches or IMO consequence breaches is likely to be discretionary. And if that paperwork isn't there and fully developed, your club isn't going to cover you. And if it keeps happening, your your cover as a whole, not least what what happens in terms of the ports you're visiting, is going to come under you know real pressure, real scrutiny. And your phone stays on board of the ship mm. in terms of documentation for three years. Yeah. So um, I'm sure that ports and flag will look at potentially, and I hope that there's not going to be repeated offenders in that sense. Yeah. And I think the number of phonars, if you sort of repeatedly uh, apply for a phonar, um, the number of times you do that or the number of times you will be logged. So it's, you know, it's not something you can do twice a month, every month for a year. Without <laughs> 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 Some <laughs> level of scrutiny. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, well, we'll see how 2020 plays out for us all. But thank you all very much for your insights uh, today. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.